Hey everyone, this is Lyle and Lawson, your host for the Faith FM Breakfast Show. We are taking a much needed break over the holiday period and we'll be back live with you on the 10th of January. Our amazing producer Shell has put together some of the best and greatest shows from the year that you're going to enjoy revisiting. So stay tuned and listen in and we will be back live very soon. You're listening to The Breakfast Show on Faith FM 87.6, 87.8 or 88 right across Australia, right across the Faith FM network wherever you are. Positively different radio in the morning. You're with the Double L team, Lyle and... Lawson. Lawson, how are you this morning? I'm, I'm great. You, you're great? I'm really good. Praise yeah, God. I'm just happy things are going well. Got your red jacket, jacket yeah, on this morning? Yeah, my red jacket on this morning. I just wanted to get cold enough so that I can wear a jacket every day. Broken out the puffer jacket. Oh, well, because at the moment, like, you can wear a jacket, but then it's like, you know, once it hits 10 p.m., then I'm, like, sweating. I have to take it off. Heading for the T-shirt. Oh, but I just want it to be cold. Well, apparently there's a bit of a cold snap coming on. You can you can keep the cold. Uh, you're welcome to it. I like summer. Ah. I'm so, kind of sad because summer is 
disappearing into the rear vision mirror and I've got to put up with this now for the next few months until summer comes back again, but that's okay. That's true. It'll be back. <laughs> Eventually. It will return. It will return. Mm-hmm. La, what are you grateful for? I am grateful for dinner dates this morning. Oh. Yes. Lunch dates, sorry. Lunch dates. Lunch? Lunch dates. Um, uh- you said dinner dates yeah, this morning, yeah, I, and I was like, "I'm I'm, I'm huh? grateful this morning uh-huh. for uh-huh. lunch dates. Lunch dates. Yes. Why is that? I had lunch date yesterday. Oh, that's it was cute. Awesome. Yeah, that's it was, cute. It was amazing. Was it with Shell? Uh huh. <laughs> <laughs> I get to take the producer out for lunch, and that's pretty amazing. Oh, that's cute. Yeah. Oh, that's really cute. And what, um, thanks for the invite. Oh. No, no worries. No worries. <laughs> anytime. Anytime. <laughs> Okay, so in today's news, we have uh, the Uyghur situation in China mm-hmm. popping up again. Mm-hmm. Um, some major propaganda being put forward by the Chinese Communist Party. And so we need to talk about this because the issue of religious liberty with the Uyghur community is something that we are going to see repeated in a larger mm. scale around the world moving forward.
You're listening to Ryan Stevenson with No Matter What. This is The Breakfast Show. The Breakfast Show will be back with you live again on the 10th. Positively different news. Positively different news. Last week, the record of the most Girl Scout cookie boxes sold in one season was broken with 32,000 boxes sold by eight-year-old Lily Bumpus in San Bernardino, California. One person sold those? Yes. How how was that even possible? Did you just find a bulk buyer? No. She's just, she's actually just reading her story. She's a real inspiration. Okay. Okay, so check it out. Um, Lily Bump is from San Bernardino, California. Um, she is a cancer survivor uh, who, you know, uh, struggled with cancer as a toddler and has now been seven years cancer-free and has just made it her personal mission to just be an absolute gun at raising money for charity. Go uh, the Bumpuses. Yes, so Lily Bumpus, obviously, you know, as an eight-year-old, uh, as an eight-year-old, you know, she she has been getting help from her, from her parents and from her family, but these kinds of things are usually usually uh, family ordeals. And, uh, yeah, she's just been doing fantastic, setting, yeah, the all-time record for boxes sold. Um, and it has been uh, noted here that uh, there was a fi- 5,000 m- more of those boxes uh, were going to fellow childhood cancer warriors in hospitals uh, um, and to help feed the homeless in communities um, and to deploy troops as well. So, and this doesn't didn't even include like the ones that were donated and not sold. They weren't even included in this number. They were just like some extra ones that were like, oh, the ones that we donate to people, we you know we'll just like take the financial hit for that, which was you know five thousand boxes. But yeah, yeah, you can't really put the donated ones in the Guinness Book of Records. Yeah, but thirty two thousand four hundred eighty four in one season, which spans about like three months. I suspect that this girl has a very bright future in sales. Hundred percent. I think we need to recruit her to be a literature evangelist. <laughs> yes. We need to get her out in the fields. And, you know, hey, this is this is a good cause. There's a lot of good things that the money is going for mm. in this story. And and it's good to see, you know, people with uh, cancer and so forth that have been help, help, being helped out. Yes. Particularly by somebody who has experienced that themselves, you mm. know, because if you've been there and you've experienced it, then I think it does really change how you look at these circumstances. And so she's out there making the world a better place for people that are suffering with what she suffered. Yeah, 100%. It's fantastic to see. And um, going forward, she has, you know, no, uh, there's no signs of stopping. She's just going to, she wants to expand her, you know, her circle of charity and just get get bigger and bigger in what she's doing. So that's fantastic. Okay. Yeah, I've, one day she's going to be running a, uh, a an NGO somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> just just killing just, it. Just doing good somewhere in the world. 100%. Okay, Lyle, I have another quick story here. I wanted to get your opinion on this. So one of the most booming industries in tourism at the moment is virtual tourism. Right. So that's where someone, uh, you know, gets a phone and a selfie stick and, you know, say goes to... it's. This is what's happening in Australia. They go to Sydney or Melbourne mm-hmm. and they, uh, you know, jump on a Zoom call with some people from overseas and they just walk around the city all day while the people watch and they take them to all the sites of that particular city. And, yeah. Right. Is that... Is, I think your arm would get sore <laughs> holding the selfie stick. It probably would. And you'd have to be a good talker. I think you could do a good job at this, Lawson. You're good at talking. 
I think you could. I think you should do some Zoom uh, tourism around Newcastle because <laughs> Newcastle. you could. You could. You could. You could give uh, a two-hour talk on Newcastle. Oh, 100 percent, dude! I grew up here, man. This yeah, is, this is your this hometown. Is my, this is my sea, bro. You'd be like, this is where we are here, and this is what happened this here. Is and this is where I took a girl on a day. This is where I got rejected. I'm just joking. But like, I was just wondering, like, would you sit down for maybe two or three hours looking at a computer screen being led on a virtual tour by someone? No, you wouldn't. No, too much FOMO. Too much. Oh, that's true. I like, honestly, I was like, at first when I read this, I was like, oh, that's kind of silly. Like, especially because you have to pay for it. Oh, you got to pay for this. Yeah, you have to pay for this. This is a paid thing. This is a gig. Awesome. This is a gig. Awesome. Third job right here. <laughs> Dude, bringing in the big bucks. No, but that's the thing. If you didn't have to pay for it, I would be keen. I think, I think you need to have screen. a mounting, like a chest mount for your selfie stick so you didn't have to hold it all the time. That's true. Or you could, like, if you had, like, a really good setup and you could alternate between the cameras. Yeah, ma- maybe that's... UV. Oh, I just have a, have a little uh, a mixer that uh, bolts to... Um, or producer in, Shell can be in a van driving beside me, flicking between the cameras. No, just have a, just have a little, uh, a little you know, with a couple of buttons or a little joystick so you could flick between cameras and you've got, say, you know, three or four cameras just all around <laughs> you, some of them looking at you, some of them looking at, at the uh, scenery. <laughs> good stuff.
was Gentry with Redeemer of Israel. You're listening to The Breakfast Show. Somebody's texted in in, in uh, uh, support of the Bumpers Girl who set the record for selling um, Girl Scout cookies, mm. the all-time record, and says um, she obviously sold them to her family members. Good on her. Next time, Australian Prime Minister. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, go the bumpers. Anyway, all right, let's go to a story coming out of Australia. So the Chinese um, government held a press conference um, uh, yesterday at their embassy here in Australia, mm-hmm. um, which was basically a propaganda press conference about the Uyghur region or uh, the Xinjiang region of China. Now, in Xinjiang in China, there are around about one million Uyghur Muslims who have been thrown into <coughs> concentration camps because of their faith. Yeah. And this is a very, very concerning situation. And the Chinese Communist Party is trying to, you know, uh, make themselves, I guess, look a little bit better and like, no, we're not doing this. And so they, they called the press conference and they have, um, and, and, and as a result of that, they have, um, you know, showed some videos, a whole bunch of videos from the Uyghur region and tried to basically convince Australians that, like, no, there's nothing to see here. Um, there's nothing taking place. This is all good and everybody's happy. I kind of wonder how you can have a million people in concentration camps and have everybody happy at the same time. Mm. But, you know, they had testimonies from uh, various residents of Xinjiang, um, in fact, from six different residents where they heard that these people were happy, that they had graduated from these vocational training schools which apparently they are, surrounded by barbed wire. Uh, and so no one can break in and get free education. No, that's right. They don't want people breaking in and keeping them very, very safe. Mm-hmm. And how they were also happy to be able to be practising birth control. Oh. Because one of the things that you know the Chinese government is being accused of is forced sterilisations and effectively a form of genocide, cultural, cultural and um, person genocide happening in Xinjiang. Uh, so, you know, we've got some testimonies from six residents of this region that are saying how wonderful it is right now. Mm. Um, the Chinese ambassador, Chen Jingyi, said that this was to help journalists understand the real situation mm. in Xinjiang. You know, it's kind of hard to believe a lot of this stuff in today's world where we have things like social media and satellites. Mm. Because you can't really hide anymore, particularly when you're in a country that is as massive as China, mm. uh, even though the Chinese are incredibly advanced with their electronics and their tech and so forth, you can't, you just can't hide this kind of thing. Mm. And particularly in a world that has been globalised, you might have been able to have a crack at it 100 years ago, but you can't do it anymore. Yeah. And you would think the Chinese would know better because they are the world's leaders when it comes to tech. They mm. should know that people actually know what's going on. Yeah, wow. Um, and so anyway, so they're, they're trying to uh, label all of this stuff as um, being fake news. The um, On the videos it featured the Xinjiang uh, vice governor, um, Erkan Taniyaz, and he stated that the government ta- main, maintains ethnic harmony in the region. Mm. And by segregating that Western politicians have been lying about the treatment of Uyghurs, and the region is a region of prosperity and harmony. 
Mm. Okay, so here's my big question. If this is true, then why not allow free reign to any journalist to go there, live there for six months, and mm. just mingle with the population, have conversations completely unsupervised? Mm. If what you are saying is true, then do that. Mm. And then we will believe you. Because then you can have, you know, politicians from, you know, uh, journalists from, you know, all different sides of politics that can go over there and can actually write and record stories and record what they see and what they hear and what is actually going on. Let them let them live in one of these concentration camps for a couple of months mm. and talk to the people on the unsupervised. Give them free access to send encrypted emails about what they see out, you know, back to, you know, wherever they come from. Yeah. That's, you know, ultimately the thing. It's like if it looks like cultural genocide and you give us no reason to believe that it's not cultural genocide. That's right. If you're not going to be open and transparent, if you just say, oh, no, this is not, you need to believe us, Mm. then really what they're doing is they're actually making themselves look a whole lot worse than what they were before. 100%. Like a thousand percent. Yes. Anyway, um, nearly all detainees in the concentration camps have been thrown into these concentration camps, which they say, no, these are not concentration camps. These are, are um, vocational training centres, right? Mm. Uh, except that you only get to go to one of these vocational training centres if you have been provoking ethnic hatred. Oh, Okay. So if you've been provoking ethnic hatred, you get free education. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. Wait, so that that makes me think. So there are, like, Uyghurs who are on the outside. Yes. Who are living... There's a whole bunch of Uyghurs living in Australia. Yeah. Oh, like as in... But in, but chi- in, in China. China yes. Yeah, yeah. So there's Uyghurs on the outside who, because they are well-behaved, they don't have to go. That's right. Okay. That's kind of how it goes. Yeah. But if you say... Okay, but see, the thing is, Uyghurs are Muslims, and so if you maintain Islam, you get to go on the inside, and if you become secular, you get to be on the outside. Yeah. So that's the ultimate thing. It's like not that you promote, you know, uh, cultural hate, but rather that you practice your culture that you came from and then you... And religion. Yeah. Yikes. Mm. Okay, there's a large Uyghur community, of course, here in Australia that have lots of family in these camps. And some of the bizarre things, like, you know, people in their 70s that have been sent to these camps, you know, why would somebody in their 70s need free vocational education? You know, somebody in their 70s is somebody who's retired. Why would you send them vocational training? Mm. Uh, The camps have been around for five years now. There's a whole bunch of people that uh, simply went missing five years ago and haven't been heard from since. There's a whole bunch of elderly people that have vanished into these concentration camps and not come out again. Uh, There are a whole bunch of families that have been separated for years now. Um, Husbands and wives, parents and children, small children, and uh, it raises a whole lot of questions. And what ha- what what it really illustrates is what happens when you have when you try to have forced equality. Mm. And that's what communism is all about. And that's why you know Chairman Mao, when he came to power, managed to kill off uh, sixty five million people, and particularly went after the intellectual class because he was trying to force equality and bring everyone to an even playing level. We try to do that in a minor way in the West. It's going to end up in the same way. Yeah. And what you've got here is a small picture of what is one day going to happen amongst Christianity mm. uh, worldwide. That's what the Bible teaches. You've on your feet and all your self-loathing. You 
Everybody, you're listening to Sarah Kroger with Belovedness here on The Breakfast Show. The Breakfast Show will be back with you live again on the 10th. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> well, joining us on the phone this morning is Dr. John Ashton to talk about creation and science. Dr. John Ashton, welcome to the show. Well, hello, Rob. Yes, good to be here. Yeah, fantastic. Now, we really appreciate every time you come on the show and talk about creation and science and evolution, um, this whole discussion, what are we talking about today? 
Well, I think uh, when I, uh, you know, there's so many young people today that have been taught that the uh, life on Earth is millions of years old and we evolved. And uh, just recently I came across um, an article summarising a, a number of uh, radiometric di- dating results that had been done over a number of years, actually, on rocks of, uh, of known ages. And uh, they gave some interesting results because when you when you think about when we look in our standard biology textbooks, uh, have uh, little sort of um, you know shell type creatures and creepy crawlies, and they'll date these at 600 million years old, and then we'll go up a little bit further and we'll get into uh, fishes, and then we'll get into sort of reptiles and and dinosaurs and birds and, and mammals and and so forth, and and the time periods that the the theory of evolution requires is millions of years because all these new uh, amazing features of these animals, and really they are design features, in the evolutionist mind, they have to have a whole lot of time and assume that there's a whole lot of mutations that gradually produce these um, correct features. Like just the other night, um, uh, we were reading um, an article to one of my grandchildren about geckos, and we know these little geckos that you know, they can crawl up and, and run along the ceilings of your of uh, your house and you think, well, how can they how can they stick there? And of course it was a fascinating article um describing how on the feet of uh, the little gecko there's designed into a number of little toes that um have all these fibers, very fine fibers. And these very fine fibers produce an electrical charge. And this electrical charge actually adheres to the surface of the, um, of the material that they want to climb up. And what they do is they actually roll their foot so that it's sort of like, you know, peeling off a poster sticker. So you can stick it on and then peel it off. And so they roll their foot. And so that's how they can um, adhere. And it's an amazing force. They've calculated the force that uh, is required to hold the little gecko on. If it was on a human foot, it would support a a 90, um, I think it was a 90 kilo, um, it would support in over that area. And so when you think of this, this is an amazing design feature. Now, for evolutionists to produce all these fascinating design features, um, including our amazing reproductive systems and all the different animals and plants and, you know, flight in insects and all this sort of thing. They've got this crazy idea that over hundreds of millions of years, somehow mutations could uh, produce all these amazing life forms that we see. And, of course, the Bible picture is that, no, God created this, and this makes so much sense. But what our young people are taught is, no, that uh, the evidence for this is that the Earth is millions of years old. The surface of the Earth is, is millions of hundreds and more billions of years old, actually. And so this, you know, conflicts with the Bible account. But when we look at it, all the evidence is putting, pushing the uh, creation model, or well, the not model, it's the creation account. So when, so the the whole. Uh, sort of foundation, really, of the evolutionary model is radiometric dating. That's the the only data that they can pull up. And so it was very interesting. This uh, report looked at the um, 
some radiometric dating results as, that uh, started off with the Mount St Helens uh, lava dome, so in October 1986, uh, um, after the main eruption, uh, lava oozed out of the remaining volcanic vents. It was very viscous lava. It was a dalcite lava. It, was a, it didn't flow very far and it piled up and it produced this dome. Now, when they uh, radiometrically dated this rock, so we know that this rock formed in um, 1986, very hot, it was molten. And so um, when we they did the uh, potassium-argon dating of this sort of uh, rock um, back in uh, 1992, um, they dated the rock. Uh, the ages of the rock ranged from... Uh, 350,000 years to 2.8 million years. And yet the rock, as we know, was um, just, uh, you know, not even uh, 10 years old. Um, so this was, um, you know, this is a rock that we actually knew the age of. Now, mm. similar results have been done on other rocks. For example, the Halulalalai basalt uh, that erupted in... Um, uh, 1801 in Hawaii, that similarly dated at 1.6 million years. There was an eruption in 1792 of uh, Mount, Etna, uh, Mount Etna in Sicily, another basalt, that dated at 1.4 million years, plus or minus 0.08, so it's you know, quite an accurate result. Um, another eruption in 1915 in Mount Lassen in California, um, gave 100,000 years. Um, another eruption uh, that uh, was um, uh, believed to have erupted according to the local history about the year 1000 AD, so it was roughly 1,000 years old, uh, dated at 250,000 years. So we can see there's, um, a, you know, a huge... Uh, discrepancy. Another, there are a number of um, volcanoes that have erupted near the um, rim of the Grand Canyon, and so their lava has flowed over on on top of the, all the sedimentary rocks of the Grand Canyon. Now, rocks at the base of the Grand Canyon, are, are, for example, the Cardenas basalt, dated at about one billion years, one point oh seven billion years. Um, and that was in agreement with the evolutionary theory. But then, when they dated the rock, the lava on the top of the Grand Canyon, it actually dated older than the uh, rock at the bottom. And so we we have when we date rocks that we sort of know the age of, and this sort of thing by this method, we get absolutely ridiculous results. And I think you know there was also the classic example of the Mount Noahoe eruption in New Zealand that erupted in, um, uh, I think, somewhere, uh, there were several eruptions between 1948 and the early 1950s. And when samples from these rocks were uh, dated by a number of different methods um, by the School of Earth Sciences at um, the Australian National University, which is you know, one of Australia's top universities, and uh, their geosciences area is certainly one of the top, um, they gave... Uh, ages in the order, you know, of sort of, uh, you know, 130 million years, and I think one sample gave a, a result in the order of 3 billion years. And yet these rocks were about 50 years old. The work was done around the year 2000. So 
when we and, and this is an important thing to understand. We when when you're looking at a rock out there that you don't know the age of, um, and you can do these results and get a million years, you know, or so many million years or tens of millions of years for the rock. The evolutionists jump on this and they say, this is how old the rock is. But when we can analyse lava that we historically saw up, we know how old it is and it's only, you know, tens or hundreds of years old and yet it still comes back at millions of years. And it, it's very interesting. This should really seriously ring alarm bells that we've got major problems with this long-age theory. And it's interesting, when they were calibrating, when they first were calibrating the um, radiometric dating methods, they dated some rocks from memory. I think it was over in the Appalachian Mountains over on the east coast of uh, the US. And uh, they happened to get dates that corresponded to the fossil ages. But what they should have tweaked to is the fossil ages were based on the uniformitarian principle, and that is that the surface of the Earth has just been changing very gradually all the time. But we know that isn't true because we have evidence of catastrophe. You can't bury whole dinosaur skeletons and whole whale skeletons and have them preserved by some slow, gradual, you know, a few millimetres per year deposition. There's a catastrophic past. If you have a catastrophic past, you can't, um, apply this uniformitarian principle. So automatically that should have tweaked to those people, hang on, we can't assume the uniformitarian principle. And if these dates are lining up with this uniformitarian principle, then there's got to be something classic wrong. And I think radiometric dating conveys an aura of reliability to the general public and even professional scientists. And what we need to realise is that this method is just absolutely flawed. Mm. And when we look at the evidence for design in nature and creation, it's overwhelming. And I, I hope that this can be really encouraging, that we can believe the Bible account. Now, life on Earth isn't that old. Erosion data tells us that as well, that the surface of the Earth is not, you know, the hundreds of millions of years old that they claim. And so we should really be reinforced now, hope that we can believe the Bible account. And therefore, also, when we combine that, the overwhelming evidence for creation with, and we've just celebrated Easter, with all the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' resurrection, and that is a, a massive supernatural event that confirmed that God came here as our Saviour. We, we, we have hope. Evolutionary model and the evolutionary belief has no hope for the future, no hope for life after death or anything like this. But when we think about this amazing, beautiful system here, why would it be created just to live a little, you know, short time? You know, we were created to be with the Creator forever. And I, I think, you know, I'm hoping that this will give listeners hope. We can really believe the Bible account. It really makes so much sense from so many different directions to look at it. Mm. Yeah, that's fantastic stuff, John. And I was just, you know, thinking about it as you're working through some of those dates. And so you've got Mount St. Helens. Um, and if my memory serves me correctly, um, you're dealing with samples that were taken, say, six or eight years after, I think eight years after the actual rock was formed and comes back at 2.8 million years old. But then you referenced another one that uh, took place a thousand years ago and came up with much more recent 
figures. Did I get that right? Uh, re- a more recent yeah, age? Sure. Yeah, sure. Yeah, the, the that seems to be backwards. In Arizona, according to sort of Indian dating, occurred about, um, or, or uh, you know, um, Aztec dating, uh, occurred about a 1,000 years ago, about uh, 1064 or 1065, and that dated at, um, there were several measurements done, uh, 270,000 years, um, plus or minus 90 uh, years, or uh, 250,000 years, plus or minus 150 years. Mm. Yeah, so 250,000 to 200... Yeah, 250,000 years to 270,000 years by two different uh, analysis uh, that were done at different times, and yet the Indian dating is 1064 to 1065. And that's a lot newer than the six-year-old rock out of Mount St. Helens that comes back at... 2.8 2.8 million years. There's a big difference between those two, and it seems to be working backwards. You know, you would think that if there was some credibility to this, that it would it would at least it would at least work the right direction, even if the figures were wildly incorrect. Well, that's right. And, and the example where the lava at the top of the Grand Canyon dates older than the lava at the bottom of the Grand Canyon by hundreds of millions of years as well, a couple of hundred million years. Mm. Yeah, so, oh, yeah, the, the, the results really random. And I think what's happening is, see, what we, the radiometric dating method really is an assumption based on uh, the rate of decay, which we've measured, and we have to assume that that's constant. But it's, it's based on the chemical analysis of minerals in these um, um, in these particular rocks, and then we have to, you know, assume uh, a whole lot of, you know, the chemistry thing that nothing was leached out, nothing was added, all sorts of things. So the method is with these sort of methods, really, for a, a, an analytical method, really to uh, have meaning, it has to be validated, and that is, we have to have known samples that we can test the method on that it gives reliable results consistently all the time. And one of the things that I point out is, and I mean, you know, I'm a chartered chemist, um, is that the radiometric dating method has never been validated for prehistorical rocks. As a matter of fact, when we use historical rocks, the method method doesn't work. Mm, mm. And so the, the most accurate method, of course, that we have is probably the carbon-14 method. And this gives much younger ages. Matter of fact, from the you know, carbon fourteen dating, um, a- anything older than a hundred thousand years, for example, would not give a carbon fourteen a result because all the carbon fourteen would be gone theoretically. And um, and yet we can date, you know, dinosaur remains, all these sort of things, and and find carbon fourteen in them. So we've got a massive discrepancy there between carbon-14 dating and these other types of radiometric dating. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, the carbon-14 dating, when we correct for the uh, carbon dioxide dilution effect and all this sort of thing and the cosmic ray effect, really confirms the age of the Earth um, indicated in the Bible of only thousands of years. Yes. So carbon-14 is the creationist best friend of the... Uh, you know, I remember hearing one scientist say at one time. So 
as we're doing more, you know, understanding more about uh, life and the biochemistry of life, all the evidence is pointing to supernatural creation. And when we look at our carbon 14 dating, it's all pointing to the biblical ages, uh, likely to be very close to the actual ages, if not absolutely correct. Dr. John Ashton, thank you so much for joining us here on Faith FM this morning. We've got to move on with the show right now. This is Chris Rice. You're listening to Faith FM. Listening to Faith FM, positively different radio.